Broadcasting live from the KVXL studios at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. The Frittle Show with Crystal Heath. I've said that we must be cautious in claiming God is on our side. I think the real question we must answer is, are we on his side? Faith, family, freedom. For me, it's very simple. I think we've got to... We've got to get the country back on the right track with the most inspiring agenda. A voice in the desert. Now, here's Crystal Heath. You have to judge us. Who can shoulder the immense, awesome responsibilities of the presidency? You've been doing this for 30 years. Why are you just thinking about these solutions right now? I know how to really work to get new jobs and to get exports that help to create more new jobs. Burke, well, you haven't done it in 30 years or 26 years. Well, any I, number you I've been to a do. senator. You Donald, haven't done it. And you haven't I done have it. been a and secretary of state. And I have Your done husband signed NAFTA, which was one of the worst things that ever happened well, to the manufacturer. She's telling us how to fight ISIS. Just go to her website. She tells you how to fight ISIS on her website. I don't think General Douglas MacArthur would like that right, too the much. Next, the, next, the next segment, we're continuing well, the subject of... Well, at least I have a plan to fight ISIS. No, no. You're telling the enemy everything you want to do. No, we're not. See, you're no, telling the not. enemy everything we you are, want to do. No wonder you've fighting. been fighting... No wonder you've been fighting ISIS your Folks. entire adult life. I have no reason to believe that... Uh, he's ever going to release his tax returns because there's something he's hiding. Typical politician, all talk, no action, sounds good, doesn't work. Secretary Clinton doesn't want to use a couple of words, and that's law and order. Secretary Clinton, last week you said we've got to do everything possible to improve policing, to go right at implicit bias. Do you believe that police are implicitly biased against black people? Lester, I think implicit bias is a problem for everyone, not just police. Well, I have much better judgment than she does. There's no question about that. And there you have it. Highlights from last night's debate. I'm Crystal Heath. This is The Frittle Show. You're listening to 101.1 FM Experience Liberty Radio here in Las Vegas. Oh, my goodness. Where to begin? (laughs) I hope you watched the debate. I really, I hope that you did. I... I um I'm not going to lie. I I enjoyed last night's debate. I did. I I was actually impressed with with both candidates, quite frankly. I thought uh Trump was much more um presidential, professional, reserved. I thought he demonstrated a lot of self-control. I thought Mrs. Clinton appeared to be healthy. She appeared to be on her game. She was prepared uh, for the attacks that Trump uh, was going to bring. She was ready. I I thought they both did a really good job for themselves, respectively. I would say, from my perspective, I was more impressed overall with Donald Trump's performance simply because he was able to demonstrate that self-control. Now... The debate itself. Shall we give it a rundown of my thoughts? Let's do it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I I found it entertaining. If you didn't find it entertaining, then here's what you need to do. For, uh, I believe it's a week from tonight. I think next Wednesday night, I believe, is the vice presidential debate. This is what I'm doing this year. I have always live tweeted my thoughts about the debates. This year... 
I am live tweeting my thoughts about the debates along with GIFs. GIFs. Whatever you want to call them. The moving pictures on Twitter. It was so entertaining. It made the debate that much more fun. So you can follow along over at the Friddle. But so the night begins. You have Hillary walks out in a red pantsuit. Donald Trump comes out in a blue tie. I don't know if we're trying to cross party line boundaries. I don't know if we consulted on what the other person was wearing. But I found it ironic that Hillary comes out wearing a red suit and Donald Trump comes out in a blue tie. I, why, why we need to do this, I don't know. Now, granted, I think Hillary looks good in red. I think red's a good color for her, so that's probably where they were going. It's a good power color. I think Trump looks fine in a blue tie. I think Trump looks fine in a red tie. I think it's a lot easier to look good with a tie color than um, a pantsuit color. So I think I think Hillary in the wardrobe issue, I think that was a good choice for her. We'll see what happens uh, as we move forward. Then it opens up. Hillary talks about how she's going to be a fantastic president. Honestly, I, I laughed a little bit. And, uh, yeah. Then Trump opens up kind of doomsday. And in that moment, I thought, oh, snap. Hillary's here sounding all hopeful. The future is bright. And Trump is here telling us that the world is coming to an end. Which it's hard to be the winner if if you're the doomsdayer, if that makes sense to you. So I was I was a little worried there at the beginning. Um but then it got going. And I would say for the first thirty to forty five minutes I think Trump was was dominating. Yeah, he was he was interrupting, but I didn't think it was overly interruptive. Um I think to an extent he had to do that because the, the moderate who was the moderator? Lester um Lester Holt, right? Yeah, Lester Holt. That guy should never moderate a debate again. If you know me, you know that I am not the world's greatest Donald Trump fan or the world's greatest Hillary Clinton fan. But this dude was so biased. Wow. He asked Trump six follow-up questions. He did not ask any of Hillary. He interrupted Trump, I believe, 41 times. 41 times. I think he interrupted Hillary less than 10. That's insane. I saw that headline somewhere this morning. I was like, good night. He also corrected the audience when they applauded for things that Mr. Trump said. But then when the applaudience, uh, uh, when the applaudience, when the audience continued to applaud Hillary, he did not correct them once. I was, I was not impressed with him. And he would argue Hillary's point for her or contradict Trump. I'm sorry, Mr. Holt, you were not there to debate. If you would like to run for president, you can one day also too take your spot on the debate stage, but that was not your job. I was very disappointed in Lester Holt as a journalist because he was not being a journalist. So then Hillary tries hard for some one-liners, right? So Trump is going at her, going at her. She's just getting buried. I was like, holy smokes, Trump is going to win this thing big. And uh, and then she tries to she tries to throw in the one-liner about the trumped-up, trickled-down economics, totally stumbles over it. 
just completely blows it with that line the first time she says it. Completely. I was like, oh, man. But then, then she picked up steam. Then she started jabbing at Trump. She goes after his dad. She goes after his business loan. She goes after his business in general. Uh, And every time she went after him personally on anything like that, he just, I thought he tanked. Like, he just played defense way too much. He needed to pivot a lot sooner, and hopefully that's something uh, for his sake that his team will recognize and improve on for the next debate. But you could watch it happen, too. You, you, you could watch him be uh, on top of his game, on top of his game, on top of his game for the first 30 minutes or so, and then as soon as she started poking at him, he just took that bait and he took it hard. Um, especially, it, just, it started with his dad and it just went went downhill from there, I thought, for Trump. Uh, but then he and he recovered. You know, he got in his line about the, you've been doing this for 30 years, why are you just starting to think of solutions now? And Hillary's like, yeah, I have thought about this quite a bit. And he says, yeah, for 30 years. That was, that was a good line. That was a good line. But then Hillary went on this very uh, random um, strategy of plugging her book and her website. Like, it's one thing to plug your website, but she plugged her website like a gazillion billion times. And she <laughs> and she threw in her book. Why would you do this? Why, why would you do this? And then she says, I have a feeling by the end of the evening I'll be blamed for everything. Trump comes back with, why not? He, he was doing good. Then he had a great line about... Uh, I'll release my tax returns when she releases her deleted emails. So up until that point, still doing pretty good. But she hammered the tax return again. He should have come back with asking about, um, because she was saying how there's stuff there that you don't want us to see. Who are you going to be beholden to? He should have come back with conflict of interest about her foundation. He should have hammered the emails. They went to cybersecurity. He swung and missed on that one completely. He should have gone after the server in the closet. Um, so it just, that's, that was my take overall, was that Trump dominated the first 30 minutes, 45, first half, basically, of the debate, and then Hillary got into her groove when she started jabbing him on personal stuff, and then he just started playing defense, and he pretty much was on the defense of the entire rest of the night. So I thought by the end of the debate, uh, that Hillary came out on top because, that was that was the end. That was the part you know. It's you forget about what happens at the beginning of a movie or a sermon. You remember the end because that's that's just easier to remember. So that's that's what I thought. But then, now you you wait to see because I I my brain works a little bit differently in the political thinking. I suppose you so you wait to see what the uh what the people say what the polls say now polls of course are not always accurate but they are polls and the only poll i saw last night was a cnn poll and i thought whoa i thought she won but i didn't think it was quite like that the cnn poll gave clinton the win 62 to 27 percent so when i went to bed last night that was the number and i was like Good grief. I thought she won. I didn't think she won that big, but man. 
But then I come in this morning and I'm getting ready for the show and I find out, you know, of course, Trump had tweeted out, oh, I won every poll except for CNN. You know, I saw that. But to be quite honest, Mr. Trump says things like that rather often, whether or not they are, in fact, factual. So I wasn't really I was just taking that one at face value. But sure enough, I get in and uh, and it's of course, it's bam right there on Drudge. Trump wins huge 82 percent to 19 percent. Like, yeah, OK. There are exactly zero Democrats that I know that ever even visit Drudge, let alone vote in their poll. So that one, I never really take Drudge <laughs> poll reports for anything because they are incredibly, incredibly biased. So I was like, right, okay, whatever. I go to this article, though, in the Daily Mail. They have a summary of all these different polls. Time Magazine poll. Trump 58 to Hillary's 42. Star Tribune has it flipped. Hillary 64 to Trump 30. CBS New York. Trump 52, Hillary 46. Fox 5. Trump 62, Hillary 34. WCPO Cincinnati. Trump 60, Hillary uh, 35. San Diego Tribune. San Diego Tribune. Trump 66, Hillary Clinton 34. News 2 in Nashville. Trump 64, Hillary 37. Slate. Slate. Trump 54, Hillary 45. The Las Vegas Sun, our our local paper. Trump 81, Hillary 19. The Washington Times. Trump 71, Hillary 22. Variety. Trump 51, Hillary 48. I mean, just unreal. New Jersey. NJ.com. Trump 53, Hillary 42. MLive in Michigan. Trump 52, Hillary 48. Fortune Magazine. Trump 51, Hillary 49. CNBC. Trump 51, Hillary 49. And so I looked at all of those numbers and I thought, good grief. I guess the public thinks that Donald Trump won that one. And I think if you're in the Trump camp, you got to be happy with that. I don't see how you can't be happy with that. And I think what you are really excited about is the fact that he has potential to do so much better than he did last night. If he could if he could focus on he needs four or five issues, even three, three four issues that he needs to be really strong on that he needs to go after her on. But I'm really hoping that in the next debate and I know it because it was topical, they didn't get into a lot of policy. In fact there was oh my goodness, so little policy in this debate. It was it was all about personal attacks and personality it wasn't at all I thought about actual solutions I mean we had a little bit here and there but not really something that I've always one reason I've always enjoyed watching debates in the past is because I feel like I always learned something I feel like the candidates were always talking about something and I was like I don't even know what that is I need to go find out I need to get educated about these things that are happening in our world that I don't even know and these candidates are like brainiacs about this stuff there was not one moment like that last night where I was like, oh, wow, I don't even know what that is. I need to go find out. Mm-mm. 
But hopefully, hopefully in future debates, we'll get to some substance. I'd also uh, like to see some of the social conservative topics thrown in there. We didn't really see anything like that. There was no conversation of the Supreme Court. There was no conversation of of uh, school choice or uh, the pro-life discussion or the marriage discussion. There are none of these conversations. And I think whenever that debate conversation happens is where the pendulum could really swing for or against Trump based on how he responds off the cuff and if Hillary is able to poke him into saying something that uh, traditional social conservatives will not be okay with. Or if he stands strong on those issues, in which case the pendulum could swing his direction and just keep swinging through the election. So we'll see. But that was my take on the debate. I uh, my, my thought walking away from it was that Hillary won, she didn't win bigly. Or big league. I still can't figure out what she's saying there. But uh, my thought was that she won. Apparently the public disagrees with me overall. But I I don't think, in the end, bottom line, I don't think Trump hurt himself at all. And I don't think that Hillary really helped herself at all. So I guess, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd mostly call it a draw with advantage Hillary, though. We'll see. We'll see if it plays out. We'll see where we end up moving forward. My friend, state representative, actually is the House Majority Whip in the state of Pennsylvania. He's going to be coming up next. We're going to talk about Obamacare and some different things that have been overlooked as we've all been focused on this presidential election. But first, Francesca Battistelli with He Knows My Name. Don't go away. Welcome back. You're listening to The Frittle Show on KVXL 101.1 FM here in Las Vegas. One of my good friends from Pennsylvania is actually on the line right now. He's the House Majority Whip in, you know, Pennsylvania, because that's where he is, where I was once upon a time when I lived in that happy land. Brian Cutler. Mr. Cutler, how are you today, sir? Excellent. Thanks for having me on. Oh, sure. It's always a pleasure to have you on. One of the things that I like about guests like you is that I can just mention something. I could just say one word, and then you could have ten minutes worth of something to say, and I just, you know, listen. <laughs> uh, hopefully that'll hold through again today, and hopefully it'll, it'll all be relevant to what we want to talk about. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, I, I want to get with, to Obamacare with you because I think there's a lot going on there, and really in all of the world of governing and politics right now that is largely just being overlooked because of all the focus on the election, which which happens every election year. Um, but before we get there. I saw, I think it was on your Facebook page, that you recently received an award for your support of small businesses. Is that is that true? Yes, that is correct. Very well deserved, yeah, was, I'm sure. It was the, uh, the, national, the NFIP, the national organization. It was their state chapter recognized me for being a guardian of small business. And obviously one of the biggest issues with small businesses for them and their employees is health care. Yeah. So that that's a very fitting uh Thing to highlight, given the current status of the what was allegedly called the Affordable Care Act, but I think it's anything but affordable, and I think that it unfortunately has limited care. <laughs> when you when you when you look at what has happened, uh, you know, if, let's go back in time a little bit. We were told if you like your doctor, you can keep it. We were told if you like your plan, you can keep it. Yeah. And the reality is, or the asterisk that, on, that was on that statement was, well. 
you can only keep your doctor if he takes the plans that are offered, and you can only keep your plan that's offered as long as the government doesn't drive it out of business. Right. And when you look at what has happened between the required items that were to be covered, as well as the limits that the federal government put in place in terms of reimbursements and the way that they're driving that market, really what they're doing, unfortunately, is unlimiting choice. They're limiting choices to those individuals who are now by the government again, required to have health insurance, uh, and now they have fewer choices than when, when this endeavor started. And that's really a recipe for disaster, because when you look at it, you're now, you have fewer, more expensive choices. And unfortunately, it is the small business people, which are the economic engine of our country. The majority of jobs really rest at that level. Those small, those small shops that might have half a dozen or dozen or three dozen employees that they really are at an unfair advantage when it comes to attracting skilled labor and then yeah. specifically providing those benefits. Yeah, and I, I, I read an article about this the other day and it just blew my mind. Um, apparently, for a family of four right now, I believe in Pennsylvania, if you were to sign up for a bronze plan through the Affordable Care Act, the deductible on the bronze plan, so not not you're getting all this great coverage. No, you're, you're on the lower end of the scale. The deductible is now over $11,000. Like, that's... Well, it's, it's outrageous when you look at what those folks are required to pay out of pocket. Yeah. Um, you know, a high deductible plan will work if you give individuals the ability to save money to in fact, sure. pay that deductible. Sure. But what's happening under the current proposals because of all the federal requirements that are put on it, and the economic pressures that are put on the plan, what's happening is you have high deductible plans where there's not a mechanism by which families can even save that amount of money to mm-hmm. ever pay their deductibles. So then you're running into a situation where they have high deductible plans that they're not paying, um, which creates an entire another level of uncompensated care, the very thing that this government program was supposed to stop and get rid of. Mm-hmm. And it really is a, a case of misaligned incentives both for the healthcare providers as well as us as patients. Yeah, and then and then there's the, the insurance companies, which I know often they get painted as the the big evil villains, but um, my brother works for an insurance company there in Pennsylvania. I won't mention which one, which one, but he was telling me the other week that Obamacare is basically wreaking havoc on these insurance companies, and now, uh, I believe, is it Aetna that's leaving Pennsylvania altogether? Yeah, we've had several large healthcare plans that are multi-state announced they will no longer uh, participate in our market or, you know, the affordable care market in general in some cases. And the reasons are because, one, they're required to cover a lot of services. Two, the original plan had that mandated, they had that mandated piece in, which was fine from their numbers perspective. I I certainly didn't agree with it on a policy perspective because I believe it's free to the individual. Yeah. And if you want to pay out of your pocket health care, that should be your choice. However, what has happened now is you've got a lot of plans that are not able to appropriately gauge what their risk pool is. And what that does is drives, it drives the it drives all of the premiums through the roof. Because what happens is now that the Supreme Court ruled that you can't you aren't required to have insurance, but yet they have to give it to you when you show up at the doorstep. Yeah. You've got uh, multiple patients with pre-existing conditions who literally wait until they have 
significant health care costs before they go and get the insurance because yeah. they make the, the rational economic decision of, well, I'll pay the fine because it's cheaper than insurance, and I know that if I really need right. it at some point in the future, they have to give it to me anyway. Right. And because of that, we really distorted the market, driven up the price. Yeah, so we basically solved no problems, created more problems, and now what I've heard, I don't know if you've heard this, but what I've been seeing on the news is that apparently the solution to the government royally messing up health care is to now give the government more power over health care. Well, that really, uh, that's not a new solution. <laughs> Anytime that the government wades into an issue and makes things worse, that's always their argument. Is, yeah. well, we simply just didn't do enough of it to make it really work. Sure. You know, and, and I'll, I'll use a broader example, and one that I think that, uh, you know, that I as a believer care about, and that's the issue of poverty. You know, I believe it's the church's duty to provide for the, the poor and the widows yeah. and the orphans. Yeah. And that since the 1960s, we've been waging a war on poverty, started under LBJ, spent billions of dollars on this, and yet when you fast forward to today, we have more people living in poverty today than we did back then. So it's certainly not a success in terms of war. And yet the argument there, just as it is for the health care, is, well, we, we simply need more government intervention when, in fact, it was the government intervention in the first place that, that wrecked everything. Yeah. Well, and what's ironic is you mentioned that you believe that it's the church's responsibility. I, I happen to agree with you. But the thing is, because... Many conservatives on the right, and I would say that this stems mostly from uh, that Christian heritage of, of a lot of you know conservatism, is, well, you guys, you don't care about poor people. You don't care about people in need because you don't want the government to take care of them. Well, and, and that's really, actually, I think you can date back. If you look back to the Depression, that was really when, because mm. of the severity of the onset of the, the large economic disaster, the church probably was not able to handle sure. it as effectively as they should, and that's when government began stepping in and making uh, and providing solutions. Um, some would argue that those solutions actually prolonged the depression, just like they prolonged the, the recession that we just came out of, and are still kind of just puttering along and struggling with. It's the worst economic recovery forward to do in terms of a, a president's tenure. And yet, when you look at that, I, I think it's something that you have to take a look at. And we as believers need to look at ourselves and say, let's put our money where our mouth is. Let's sure. help these individuals. Let's take that burden back off the government. Uh, because ultimately, I think it's our response. Okay, so I think, and I, I agree with you 100%. So that's what we can do. What, where do you see this going, though, on a, on a state level, on a federal level? How do we get healthcare back to what it should be? Is this problem well, fixable I, now? I, 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 I do think it's fixable. Um, you know, uh, I think that doing a wholesale repeal of the Affordable Care Act uh, would, as some are advocating for, you know, any path is possible. It's just a question of how much further disruption do we want in the system and how do you manage it. Yeah. Uh, so that's one starting point. One starting point is try to, you know, the other is try to fix what we already have. Um, unfortunately, because they never focused on the costs associated with, uh, you know, there's really three pieces of health care. You get costs, you get access, you get quality. And when you look at what uh, what the current proposal does, all it did was provide insurance. It mistakenly assumed that providing insurance got you into the health system. Well, the problem is many physicians do not take 
the uh, Medicaid patients that are being enrolled. So now you're left with an option. Uh, you know, you have insurance, but you don't have a physician. You know, so it doesn't. Pro- it in and of itself does not directly provide health care, which is where the problem comes in. Uh, so I, I think if you would, you know, from a state-based solutions process, if you would give individuals who want to buy insurance the same tax treatment at the federal level that you give them as if they buy it through their employer. In other words, that preferential tax treatment, uh, that you can buy the insurance with pre-tax dollars. You can do that through your employer, but if you're an individual and you buy it on the open marketplace, you're not given those same incentives. We need to do that. We need to allow a pooling across state lines, which is currently prohibited by federal law, and I think that we really should allow individuals to focus more on maintaining themselves and avoiding health care costs, mm. whereas insure, all of the insurance plans that we have today are gauged towards what you, you know, what services are covered and what services do we incentivize you to go use, when in actuality we could be incentivizing being healthy. Yeah. Yeah, and you're kind of a health nut. Would you like to tell us about yeah. your many, many oh, medals in your office? Oh, sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I kind of forgot that uh, that you would have seen those. But, uh, yeah, I, I at one point, uh, you know, I was upwards of you know, 235, 240 pounds. And, and at six foot, uh, that's overweight. And uh, I, you know, I significantly changed my diet. Uh, and, you know, I got down, uh, you know, I lost 50-plus pounds, you know, somewhere in there, but what I started doing, quite frankly, was I started watching what I ate, and I really began exercising a lot because I exercised a lot. I wanted a goal. I said I wanted to do a half Ironman, and I eventually did. And I, you know, I hit my goal time. I finished in five hours and fifty-three minutes, and you know, I run marathons. And it really is just a state of mind in terms of changing your approach, and it will. And losing that weight, living a healthier lifestyle, and making better choices will save me both money going forward from a healthcare you know, co-pays and things like that perspective, but it's also going to give me a much better quality of life. Right, because I mean, in the end, I think what everyone would would like to see is that. The insurance should be a safety net, even for those who who can afford it. It shouldn't be the go-to. It should be the, uh, you know, I've I've fallen out of a tree that I was climbing and broken my arm. Clearly, that has nothing to do with the fact that I ate pizza last night. It's simply that I fell out of a tree and broke my arm. But just maintaining that level of health so that there isn't that that need, right? Right. Uh, I think the best example is look, we all have auto insurance. We're required to have auto insurance. Sure. The yeah. Of having your registration. And that's for those catastrophic accidents. Uh, you know, and I unfortunately was in one last Thanksgiving, and I was very grateful that I had insurance. But more importantly, the person who hit me, I was glad they had insurance. Yeah. Uh, but when it comes to my car maintenance, it, my auto insurance doesn't cover my oil changes and my routine services and sure. things like that. And we really need to look at how, I think, we need to look at how our healthcare system is built and recognize that there are things that are maintenance and effort things that we should be doing, mm-hmm. and we should incentivize those, and uh, we should give people a reward for doing those, but I don't know that they should necessarily, um, you know, have, have a direct impact, if you will, on the plans themselves, yeah. uh, and, and that's something that we need to have a serious discussion about, uh, and 
you know, because, look, if I'm healthy and I, I do my physicals, I do my lab work and everything, chances are if I have a problem, I will I will find it sooner, which in the long run means that it should hopefully cost me less right. to fix whatever the issue is. Right. And I think a lot of this is also driven by the current model in our health system. Because, I mean, look, everybody changes insurance plans every couple of years. There are no long-term incentives under the current system for the insurance company to keep you healthy. Right. Because if, they, if they're in a position where they might not have you in three years, they're not looking that far out. They're making short-term decisions on short-term projections. And we, as consumers and patients, really should be in a position where we want to maintain our, our, our health. We want to save costs over the long term. And if, if we would align those incentives properly, I think we'd be in a much better place financially. I think we'd be in a much better place in terms of actual health care delivery and in terms of quality for us as patients. And that's really that. That's the direction I think we should go in terms of incentivizing value and efficiency of the health system, not just how often you use the services. That is so well said. It's almost like you talk about these things and think about them on a regular basis with your job or something. Well, I mean, and this, that actually, as you know, predated me even coming to the general. Yes. I, mean, I worked in a hospital. I was, I was an x-ray technologist uh, for 13 years before I went to law school and uh, ultimately got a, law, a degree in healthcare law. And it's, so it's certainly a passion of mine. Yes. And, I, and I've seen... I've seen it from the business side, I've seen it from the clinical side, and I've seen it from the legal side. And without a doubt, uh, I do agree that we needed to overhaul our healthcare delivery system. I disagree with how the Affordable Care Act tries to do it. Yeah, and I was hoping that that was where you would go when I mentioned that, because your life journey, to me, is fascinating. You know, people in Pennsylvania, at least, in Brian Cutler, oh, house whip. But your your life story and the things that you do and the things that interest you and where you come from and where I think that you're going is just is fascinating. So, question for you, uh, without getting into the the political side of it, why why was that transition? How did that happen for you? You go from private sector to public. Why and why should people be involved in what's happening in the realms of the public sector? Well, for me, it really it goes back to when I was in high school. Um, you know, I grew up in the community that I'm now fortunate enough to represent. I'm the eighth generation who's lived in our township, so I've got roots in our area from that perspective. And when my uh, when I was in high school, both of my parents were terminally ill. Uh, my father passed away my senior year in high school, and my mom was sick. Uh, both had Lou Gehrig's disease, and for me. The community rallied around us. It was our church. It was uh, the Lions Club, the Farm Women Association, uh, which is a, a local <laughs> which, by the way, Bible study. Yeah, I was gonna, thank you. I was going to say, people in Vegas have no idea. They're like, oh, it, what? <laughs> yeah, I, I recognize that that's unique to Pennsylvania. The Farm Women's Association is essentially a Bible study for farmers' wives. Yeah. And you know, the, the church and the Lions Club, you know, they came and cut firewood for us. The farm women provided meals for us. And our community really rallied around us as a family to make sure that my sister and I still had a relatively normal lifestyle. And really, that is, to me, the mission of what the church should do. So when I was older and I eventually went to law school when I was 28, 
I, I'm looking for opportunities to serve and to be involved. I volunteered locally at the township level, and ultimately that grew into a run for the state house because I want to be the honor of representing our area because those are the values that I think would go a long way in, in solving a lot of our national problems. Yeah. So then from there, um, I ran for my, my first time. I won. And after four terms in, in the House, uh, very much like uh, wanting to make a difference at the local level, I wanted to make a difference there, and I, I decided to run for leadership. Your former boss, uh, Mindy C., and the other colleagues that I had uh, served with Lancaster County helped me do that, and I eventually won the race to be the whip for the party. So it's, a, it's an awesome opportunity, and it, it's one that, that I'm still enjoying. It is, and you're doing a fantastic job. I, even though I'm no longer in Pennsylvania, my, my heart is still there, and I appreciate everything that you're doing uh, for our state. And I, I, I need to close with this, because no one really understands. You know, we've talked about health and, and diet and watching what you eat and everything. I don't think once you leave Pennsylvania that you really understand what that means as a Pennsylvanian, because really there is no one that cooks like Central Pennsylvanians can cook. And the things that that our Amish heritage has given to Pennsylvania is just phenomenal. And I happened to mention shoe fly pie the other day and how uh, somebody else that's on staff with me now was going to Pennsylvania. And I said, please bring back a wet bottom shoe fly pie. And everyone looked at me like I was crazy. Why would you eat something called shoe fly pie? And is that even real? And I'm going, you don't know. You just don't understand. So please, will you help explain to Las Vegas what shoe fly pie is and how wonderful it is? Well, shoe fly pie is essentially a molasses pie. It's just basically uh, just sugar. That's it. It is. It's pure sugar. Yeah. Uh, and, and I actually get the worst of both worlds from a health perspective, or the best, I suppose, from taste. Uh, <laughs> because, uh, you know, my, my dad's family's been here since 1800 and uh, in the township, and so we have a lot of Dutch cooking on yes. that side of the family. Mm. And my mom's and my and my wife's family is from the deep south, uh, down oh, in Virginia, wow. North Carolina, down. So they brought up a lot of, you know, everything's cooked in lard, uh, whether it's your beans, your pinto beans, cornbread, you know, sausage gravy and biscuits. Uh, the, you know, there is no shortage of bad soup at any of our family gatherings. <laughs> and because of that, you've got to be mindful of what you eat and how often. <laughs> that is that is so true but it's incredible like there is no place it, better it to have like thanksgiving christmas anything than central pennsylvania just there isn't yeah and, and i'll be honest you know we you, as, uh, your listeners might not know but as you know uh, we grow a lot of our own food you know, we have a large garden yeah. and we grow a lot of our own fruit all summer i had a cobbler or a cake or a pie on the counter top because it was just something that we we'd, we'd make every week you know my oldest daughter and i like to bake and we do it together and yeah and you know we can jellies and jams and uh, you know we can salsa and you know you name it we we were making it and, and uh, i'm sure i'll enjoy it this winter i'm i'm sure you will i just just i will mention that i will be back for christmas so you know um if you needed to help with any of those things i might be able <laughs> to assist all right. Well, you give me a call when you get back, and be sure to bring the extra suitcase 
so you can fill the shoe fly pods before you take them. All right, will do. Of course, it'll probably only fit three because they're so incredibly heavy. But um, thank you, Brian, for being here. I really appreciate appreciate it. Appreciate all that you are doing for the state of Pennsylvania, and uh, wish you the best of luck in your upcoming election as well. Thank you. All right, everyone, stay tuned. We'll be back in just a minute. And we are wrapping things up. This is KVXL 101.1 FM Experience Liberty Radio in Las Vegas. Today is National Voter Registration Day. We started the show talking about the debate. Only fitting that we finish by letting you know that today is a great day to register to vote. If you are here in Nevada, it's very simple. You can do it online. You can do it at the DMV, which... You know, may not be may not be so simple if you go to the DMV, but you can register to vote. The uh, paper application is simple. You can register to vote online. You just go to nvsos.gov/sosvoterservices/registration. But if I were you, I would just Google "register to vote in Nevada," and uh, then you can click on the link rather than typing in nvsos.gov/sosvoterservices/registration. But that's just me. Also, shout out to my friend Julianne. She just brought me a chocolate chip frappuccino. My day just got amazingly awesome. (laughs) Hope yours is um, almost as good as mine. Whether or not you have Starbucks, I will never know. But regardless, you can still rejoice and be happy because the Bible says you're supposed to rejoice with those that rejoice. So I'm rejoicing. You can just rejoice with me even if you don't have Starbucks because I do. Hope you have the rest of your day be as fantastic as my beginning of the day and we will see you back here tomorrow same time same place kvxl101.com is streaming online says who am i from casting crowns the acoustic version see you tomorrow